Welcome to the Start of Grind podcast. Starting a company is not for the faint of heart. They're always questioning, 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 tweaking, tweaking, tweaking. Where we talk to entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and thought leaders about how to build a great company. Like my friends, like you think you're crazy. I think you got to be a little nuts. And change the world in the process. We optimize for impact instead of profit. It's never been a more exciting time to be an entrepreneur. From Startup Grind chapters across the globe. The chapter director for Cape Town. Boise, Idaho. London. Mala, Palestine. Guangzhou, China. And delivered to you every Monday and Wednesday. It's a Startup Grind. Startup Grind is supported by Columbia Business School, where entrepreneurial thinking is part of their DNA. Through their innovative programming, Columbia Business School students have the opportunity to put their entrepreneurial visions into action. Join Columbia Business School at the very center of business. Hey there, and welcome to another great episode of the Startup Grind podcast. Today, we have a special chat with the founder of AOL, Steve Case, while he was in Virginia on his Rise of the Rest investment bus tour. Steve is one of America's best known and most accomplished entrepreneurs and a pioneer in making the internet part of everyday life. He currently serves as chairman and CEO of Revolution LLC, a Washington, D.C.-based investment firm he co-founded in 2005, where he partners with visionary entrepreneurs to build significant, built-to-last new businesses. The mission is to establish Revolution as the premier firm outside of Silicon Valley. Steve's entrepreneurial career began in 1985 when he co-founded America Online. Under Steve's leadership, AOL became the world's largest and most valuable internet company, driving the worldwide adoption of a medium that has transformed businesses and society. AOL was the first internet company to go public and among the best-performing stocks of the 1990s, delivering an 11,616% return to shareholders. At its peak, nearly half of internet users in the United States used AOL. Steve's passion for helping entrepreneurs remains his driving force. He was the founding chair of the Startup America Partnership, an effort launched at the White House to accelerate high-growth entrepreneurship throughout the nation. Steve is a leading voice in shaping government policy on issues related to entrepreneurship and working across the aisle to advance public policies that expand access to capital and talent. Let's listen into this great interview with Steve Case, interviewed by Startup Grind's founder, Derek Anderson. Well, thrilled to be here. What a fun day. It's been great so far. A lot of fun. The best is yet to come, the pitch competition. That's right. There's a big check back in the back, which I, I didn't know. I don't think you can. it can be cashed, right? Or can it? It's well, literally, good, good luck trying. It's like a Tiger <laughs> You can walk Woods. into the bank with your... Tiger Woods check. Oversized check. Our hashtag today is uh, Rise of Rest. Hashtag Rise of Rest. So feel free to pull out your phones and not check your email and 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 uh, take a picture and, and tweet what you learned. You want to check your email? It's okay because like with AOL, I actually like email. <laughs> totally cool with that. Even if it's Gmail or something, it's okay. Nah, so. less so. Okay. <laughs> Times have changed. So. <laughs> um, let's uh, and at Steve Case. Let's start. You know. I've spent the last couple of weeks just really diving into the history of AOL, and ma- many of us lived through it in some form or another. And a, a couple of things really struck me. The first is it, it was almost like a blueprint for what I'm seeing with the companies today. There's so many things that, that were so forward thinking on it that just the, the models are being repeated. The first of those is really a focus on community. And, and I wonder if you could just start by talking about why in the late 80s, early 90s, like, what was, your, what was your thesis on community, and, and how did that evolve over time? Well, as, as uh, was said in the introduction, we started AOL uh, 30 years ago this summer. It was, uh, you know, 1985. Uh, and at the time, only 3% of people were online, uh, and they were only online an hour a week. So when we said we wanted to get America online, we were totally serious. It was how do you build this new medium? We did believe that it could have a transformative impact on, on society and 
empower people in all kinds of ways. We wanted to get America online. At the time, the reason it was only 3% in one hour uh, is virtually nobody had a device to connect. Very few people had personal computers back then. The few people who had personal computers, very few of them had modems to actually have the interactivity. If they did have a computer, they'd have a modem. Most didn't want to go to the trouble of you know, learning the software and then connecting. And if they did connect, most of the commercial online services at the time, the source and CompuServe and others, were $10 an hour. So you're not going to spend a lot of time on it if, if, it's, if it's that expensive. So we knew, we, we, well, we thought, you know, it turned out to be the case, we had this big idea of getting everybody online, but we knew we had to make it much easier, much more useful, much more fun, much more affordable to actually you know, get going. It took us a decade to really, you know, before we kind of got traction. So one of the lessons to me, if you really want to change the world, it's going to require some, some perseverance. And going back to your question on community, we really believed that the killer app was people. We thought there was a role for content. We thought there was a role for commerce. Uh, we thought there was all kinds of different aspects of this medium that would be important. But at the epicenter of it, uh, almost the soul of the medium was community, people. And so a lot of things we did, you know, things like chat rooms and instant messaging and things like that were designed to provide those tools for people to connect to each other, both people they already knew and better ways to stay connected, uh, as well as people they didn't yet know, but should know because they had some shared interest. And you, you also were really credited for um, focusing on design and making the product simple. And, and that seemed to come out of solving some of your own problems and the frustrations you had with technology leading up to that, where you were trying to put together computers and, and it was just basically impossible to do that. It was impossible to, to get online in, in any way, shape, or form, where your competitors were really known for being ad-driven, for just information overload. Um, and you know, I, I, we see this today, right? This simple, beautiful products. It's the same principles again and again and again. Um, is, how, how did you do that? How did you, how did you keep the product simple when it could have turned into hundred different things. Well, I think it, it helped that our guiding light was trying to get everybody online. And I used to say uh, at the time, particularly in the mid to late 80s, that we needed to make it easy enough to use so my mom could use it. My mom was a little offended by that statement. He said, I, I know way more than, than your dad. Why don't you pick on your dad? But, but actually, I think it made the point that this was not, we did not want to limit this just to people understood technology, you know, comfortable with technology. We want everybody, you know, to get connected. So. How do you simplify every aspect? Of it? How do you make it as, as easy as possible to you know, get online? And then once you're online, as easy as possible to get around. We knew it wasn't going to take off unless it was, you know, it wasn't necessarily going to be quite as simple as turning on a TV, but it needed to be more in that you know, direction than, than the way it was. Uh, at the time, it took, again, years before we finally you know, got going, but we knew it was important if we really were going to create a mass market and get everybody connected. I think, I think that that's another great theme is that you had time and you, it, was, it was over 5, 10, 15, 20 years that this kind of, this product and this service developed and, and you went in a lot of different ways but all with this kind of end goal in mind. And I, and I wonder like, you meet with a lot of entrepreneurs, you see a lot of entrepreneurs um, with, through Revolution, your um, investment arm, you've invested in a lot of entrepreneurs. How does, how does an entrepreneur extend their time? Or how do they think about time? And um, it seems like we're always in such a huge rush. Like, I got I to gotta get this to work. I got you know, to get a million users, this, that, and the other. But like, what do you tell entrepreneurs in order to give themselves enough time to be successful? Well, I think, it's, I think it really depends on what 
you're focusing on, what, what, you're, you know, what battle you're fighting, if you will, as an entrepreneur, because I think it varies depending on, on you know, kind of that starting you know, premise. There are some things that are, if they're going to be successful, they have to be successful quickly. In hyper-competitive, particularly app markets, you don't get traction relatively quickly uh, in a sea of almost infinite options. It's going to be hard to you know, get traction. So there is some of that dynamic. Uh, but our experience with AOL and our experience actually with the next wave of companies, what I think is sort of the third wave of, of the Internet, uh, is going to require more perseverance. It's going to require more, more partnerships. It's, it's going to require figuring out ways to build these things, uh, these, these kind of companies over, over a longer period of time. Uh, and and it's, it, the second wave, it just is, is a context, when I think of the first wave we're sort of talking about, it was companies like AOL, but there are many others that help get everybody connected, help build the infrastructure, whether it be you know, Cisco or others, so that the actual networks existed and the devices existed and the services existed and the software existed and the content existed, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That was sort of 1985 to 2000, you know, sort of that, that, that first wave of just building the internet and explaining to people why they should be connected. The last 15 years or so has been the second wave, uh, which has really been the phenomenon of building on top of the internet. Because the, the core infrastructure, the core platforms already existed. It was about apps. It was about Twitter or Snapchat or other, other you know, kind of you know, apps, other services. Uh, and it therefore was about that particular product. It therefore was about mostly about engineering, usually with you know, relatively small teams. And it was essentially a hits business, kind of like the movies and music business. Either you were you know, hit, hit it and you were successful or, or you kind of struggled. But it was more about product and more about... Uh, you know, the more, really more about apps. And that will continue. There, there will be opportunities for that to continue. But the third wave, which I think is just now kind of beginning to break, is going to be integrating, since we already built the Internet and we already built on top of the Internet, it's really integrating the Internet sort of seamlessly and pervasively in every aspect of our lives and disrupting in the process huge industries of our economy. And it's going to be energy and education and health and food and transportation, really, really big, you know, kind of sectors. Uh, and that third wave is going to require more of this partnership, you know, orientation and require taking a longer-term you know, view. You're not going to be able to kind of revolutionize education overnight. You're not going to be able to revolutionize health overnight. It's going to require more perseverance and require more, uh, more, more partnerships. It, it feels like you could almost throw a dart on any industry, um, any, you know, big market cap, Anything out there? I mean, I mean, you see so many companies that are getting funded. You see so many companies that, you know, VCs and other people are making these investments. That hey, this is going to disrupt this huge industry. But it, it feels like everything is on on the board. I mean, I, like, I at least for me, I couldn't be more optimistic seeing, you know, the amount of funding as an entrepreneur. I couldn't be more optimistic that there are so many ideas, there's so many opportunities out there with the third wave. Kind of, it's like everything's at play. Nothing's, nothing's. No, sacred. I think I think that's right. And I actually think the third wave links up with this rise of the rest idea, yeah. which at the core is that you know, Silicon Valley is awesome. It will continue to be awesome. It's sort of the pride of America. It's the envy of the world. Uh, and there are other great places like New York City's now become kind of hot. Boston, Cambridge area has become you know kind of hot, uh, and there are great companies being built there. Awesome. Uh, but last year, 75% of venture capital went to those three states, California, New York, Massachusetts, 75%. The other 47 states, including Virginia, fought over the other 25%. Uh, 
And that basically is saying that most of the great entrepreneurial opportunities and most of the great entrepreneurs are in those three places, not in the other 47 places. I think that's wrong. And I think in this next wave, you know, particularly as you're trying to target some of these you know, other industries, these third wave industries, where many of these large companies now are based, you know, the agriculture you know, business is based in the middle of the country. Some of the ag tech things will probably be around St. Louis because you know, Monsanto's there and there's thousands of smart engineers who understand agriculture there or, Saint, you know, or uh, Louisville or some other, other places. Health, a lot of the health IT companies are interesting things happening around Minneapolis and around Nashville because they have an understanding of what's happening in, in those, uh, those different uh, sectors. So I think you'll see these regions continue to rise just naturally because it's easier and cheaper to raise capital and more attention will be focused, not just our efforts, but many efforts around entrepreneurs in places like Richmond and that will intersect with this you know, third wave. And my expectation and my hope is in the next 10 or 15 years, we will see you know, the venture capital more broadly dispersed, we'll have a more evenly dispersed innovation economy, which I think would be better for the, the country, and it will help regions like, uh, you know, the, the Richmond area to rise up and, and really establish some of the next great companies in this next wave. Uh, talk about America's opportunity here versus other, other places. Um, are there countries that you look at or that you've seen that you think, you know, wow, they're hungry, they're fighting, you know, they're, they're doing a good job at solving this problem, Not, notwithstanding Silicon Valley, but if you take everything else in America, are, are there examples of ecosystems or, or, or people or countries that you would say, like, America needs to get hungry like this person is getting hungry? Well, I would say I'm pretty optimistic about our position as a country. I think, I think we, we have it it's within our grasp to remain the most innovative entrepreneurial nation in the world, uh, but it's no guarantee, and I think one of the... Uh, I, I do get worried sometimes when people say, well, there's something about the, you know, kind of pioneering spirit of America and, you know, the entrepreneurial spirit that is really so unique that it's never really going to emerge in, in, in other parts of the world. I think that's wrong. I think there's growing evidence to suggest that that's, that's uh, uh, wrong. And I think we saw the impact of globalization in things like manufacturing, you know, 50 years ago. 25 years ago, we saw the globalization of finance, of capital. Now we're seeing the globalization of entrepreneurship. We just are, and the amount of you know, focus in other, other regions around the world is accelerating, which is why we need to make sure we have you know, policies that are make it easier for entrepreneurs to get started and scale in terms of access to capital, some of the things that Congress passed a few years ago, the JOBS Act was part of that. It's why we need to fix our broken immigration system so we can, can continue to win what's now a global battle for, for talent. So I think we should be able to continue to lead. Uh, but if we get complacent about it, I think we will you know, kind of uh, lose our, our way because people have kind of all around the world have kind of figured out that the secret sauce, if you will, that sort of powered the American story uh, is innovation, entrepreneurship. It's, it's worth remembering, particularly sitting in Richmond, which is where in some ways the country was birthed with some of the, you know, the, the ideas from you know, Jefferson and others, uh, that 250 years ago, America itself was just a startup. It was just an idea. It was not the leading economy in the world. There was no economy. It was, it was not many people. It was, it was basically the reason we're now kind of the leader of the free world is because we have the leading economy in the world. And the reason we have the leading economy in the world is entrepreneurs, like many in this room, led the way in the agriculture yeah. revolution, then led the way in the industrial revolution, and have largely led the way in this digital revolution. 
so you know, we, we, that's what's built this country. Uh, there's obviously many other aspects to it, but the core, you know, I think the role entrepreneurs have played in building the country and build, you know, is, is critical. Uh, and we need to continue to make it easy for entrepreneurs wherever they might be, you know, and where, whatever sector they choose to, to focus on, to have a shot at building companies that won't just create value for shareholders, but value for customers and jobs and economic growth in, in communities. And, and you've seen also the rise and fall of, of, of different communities. We talked earlier about uh, the introduction, the, the Rise the Rest tours we did last year. We did two tours. One was uh, Detroit, Pittsburgh, Cincinnati, Nashville. And the second was Madison, Minneapolis, Des Moines, Kansas City, St. Louis. This one's Richmond, then Raleigh, Durham, then Charleston. Atlanta than, than New Orleans. It's interesting to note that when we were in Detroit, that Detroit 60, 70 years ago was Silicon Valley. Because at the time, the car was the hot technology of the moment, of its day, and Detroit was the epicenter. It was rocking and rolling. Detroit kind of lost its way. Global competition emerged. Detroit went bankrupt a few years ago and now it's fighting its way back. So it went from being the hottest innovation region in the world to being bankrupt because it kind of lost its entrepreneurial mojo. Also worth remembering that 100, 110 years, 120 years ago, Pittsburgh was Silicon Valley because Pittsburgh was the steel capital and steel was at the epicenter of the Industrial Revolution kind of lost its way, not quite as extreme as Detroit. You know, again, they're both fighting their way back, and, and they're actually optimistic on both. But it ebbs and flows. So the notion that we as a nation are guaranteed to have this position as the most innovative entrepreneur nation just is not true. We have, yeah. to, we have to work hard to make sure we maintain that lead. So 1776, America was a startup. Hungary, nothing to lose. Risk it all to make it work. So what are we today? Are we like Oracle or something, or Microsoft, <laughs> or what, what are we? No, no. I'm not even going to tell them what, what you just said. But yeah, no, I, I, think, uh, I think we're still uh, yeah, pretty well positioned, as I said. I'm not, I don't want to you know, kind of, I don't think we're, I think our governance, and we talked about this earlier this morning when we had uh, Senator Warner and Senator Kane and uh, Governor McAuliffe, is, you know, particularly in Washington, it's difficult to get stuff done. You know, it's, it's harder to build bridges and, and come up with some of the solutions to some of these, these challenges. So I think there is a need to kind of, you know, focus on that. But there are a lot of great things, and, and you obviously see it here with you know, great universities and a lot of you know, great creative talent, and, and, and there's a lot of people who still want to be part of this you know, kind of entrepreneurial story. Uh, and, and, you know, it goes back to immigration, though. We, we are a pretty good job of attracting people to go to UVA or wherever. Uh, but from other countries, but then once we give them these degrees, we generally kick them out, force them to go home. Um, it's kind of stupid, you know, we're kind of subsidizing their education and then forcing them to take those skills elsewhere. When, and some of them may want to, which is fine, but actually some of them actually want to stay here, aren't allowed to stay here. So there, there, some of these things do need, you know, more attention. But, you know, I'm, I'm much more on the, like I guess any entrepreneur, much more on the optimistic, you know, side of the, you know, the, the ledger. But I think there is reason to be you know, kind of paying attention to these issues and, and not getting complacent. There's a, there's, um, a couple of, uh, one of the other remarkable things about AOL was that it's, it's like one of these companies that should have 
either been bought or sold or gone out of business a dozen, several dozen times. I mean, there were so many opportunities for it to have gone a completely different way, and none of us would have ever used AOL. You know, you, you could have had 200,000 subscribers and 20 different things would have happened. I wonder if you could tell us um, about the experience that you had when um, you, you went up to Redmond, you had this very intense, this is a kind of, you're starting to get some traction, you're starting to get some success, but it's, it's, there's, you know, uh, you've IPO'd, um, but a totally different environment for IPOing then uh, versus now. Um, but uh, you then, that was in the morning of this very intense meeting, uh, very stressful meetings, and then in the afternoon, you walk into a meeting with Bill Gates, and I wonder if you could share that experience with, with us. And I don't know if everyone's heard this experience. Probably not many. But what, what happened in this meeting? You walked in there, and he says, well, I'm now telling it. Please. <laughs> I, I wasn't there, so. Well, it's, uh, I think the, I'll tell you the story, but I think the, the lesson to me is more around this perseverance, around yeah. entrepreneurship. Because we, again, started AOL in 1985, went public in 1992. It was the first internet company to go public. Uh, so we'd been at it seven years. But we had less than 200,000 customers. And we, in our IPO, we raised $10 million. And the value of the company that day was $70 million. Uh, eight years later, we merged with Time Warner. The value was $150 billion. So you know, we've been at it for a while. Decent growth. Focusing, you know, you know, <laughs> focusing uh, on, on it. And it was a struggle. And finally, kind of the sun came out. And you know, the internet really became more of a mainstream phenomenon. And at its peak, over half of all the internet traffic in the United States went through AOL. So that's when we were kind of uh, well positioned. So when we went public, I remember the roadshow. It was, you know, we were talking to prospective investors like Fidelity and all these you know, mutual funds. And you're looking at us like. <laughs> <laughs> Been at it seven years, like less than 200,000 people are using it. I know you think it's something that has mainstream appeal, but there actually is no evidence that it has mainstream appeal. And like we had to explain, well, this, you know, here's why we think this and this and that and the other. But a, a year or two, three, particularly by sort of 95-ish, 96, you know, I think people started realizing something was happening, and and suddenly the interest in it accelerated, and that's when. We got a lot of inbound interest from a lot of companies that yeah. were interested in acquiring uh, or merging in some way with uh, with AOL, and, and uh, you know, Microsoft was was one of them. We had great respect for Microsoft. Actually, feared Microsoft because at the time, you know, the Windows operating system really was the you know, so dominant kind like of monopoly. monopoly yeah. uh, they were able to integrate their own online service in it, and that you know was kind of a problem for us. And so it was sort of, you know, it was on one hand, it's great that they're entering and legitimizing the market. On the other hand, it's like, eee, this is kind of this is kind of scary. And they kind of said, well, you know, we're going to enter this market, but um, the alternative would be instead of doing our own thing, we could either invest in you or acquire you. So kind of we could acquire 20% of you or something, or acquire all of you. Otherwise. He didn't say this, well, but the implicit, he was like, we'll crush you. And that's like, <laughs> right. so it was a little you're, like. You're being very, you're being very mo modest about it. But he said, we will either invest in you, we will buy you, or we will uh, build a product and we will ruin you. And let's take a quick break from Derek and Steve for some recent startup headlines. Google has opened their open source AI tool, TensorFlow. It claims the machine learning system is flexible and easy to use. It will allow others to build products using the same system used in Google Search, Translate, and most recently, Smart Reply. Yahoo has hired the business advisory firm McKinsey & Company to help reorganize its divisions according to Recode. 
Sources say that Marissa Mayer is looking to shut down some parts of the company and invest more in others. This follows the loss of several key executives after suggestions that she had asked them for a three to five year commitment to the company. Pinterest is set to launch a new visual search tool with its database of one billion images according to the Wall Street Journal. The tool would allow users to find similar objects across the site. The aim is to be more specific than the current search tool and to return results in under one second. Let's get back to the interview. I'm not sure he exactly said that, but that was, that was sort of the point he was trying to make. And your response, I mean, I like as an entrepreneur, I'm, I'm trying to picture myself in this meeting and with the settings of the times, and having just come out of this crazy thing that morning in entrepreneurship, as uh, Matt Rogers from Ness has said, uh, it's the best day and the worst day of your life in the same day, right? So you think about like the war this crazy thing happening in the morning, and then in the afternoon, you're singing for the most powerful man in the world, and your response to his, uh, do you want me to say it, or do you, do you, do you want, <laughs> sorry. I think this, I'm not sure I remember I think the story is so fascinating. You said, we're not for sale. Well, this is the story. Which, is that what you said? I think I might have said something like that. But the next week, they offered you um, what, what was equivalent was $268 million, roughly double the stock price, a week later. Now you've um, done your research here. And, like, I can't well, remember this stuff. And, and, and a week later, and, and by all accounts, this would have been an incredible outcome for everyone. And you, your shareholders, your you know, for Microsoft, for everyone, this was like a win-win for everyone. And, um, and this is what I'm wondering. You, you fought to keep the company uh, public and to continue to run it because you felt there was a long runway. There are other people in the company that felt the same way as well. But you fought for it. And I, I just wonder, like, when, when, you're, when you have that sort of situation, when everything looks great, how do you, like, how did you look inside yourself and say, you know what, I can push this I can push this so much further. We have so much further to go, and and I'm going to continue to basically risk it all in some ways. What, like, how how did you make that decision? How did you? Well, it was it was uh, tough. I mean, I did, I did have the view that you know, we were still in like the first inning in terms yeah. of developing this company and the the idea of the internet, and that would be premature. At the same time, there were a lot of people, including a lot of people on the board, who thought. Microsoft, pretty scary competitor. They're coming, offering a pretty good price. You sure? <laughs> uh, but you know, we we eventually you know, got everybody convinced that you know, kind of that, that we were had the opportunity to build a more you know, significant company and uh, and stuck with it. And that's not always the right decision. Sometimes it, it does make sense to you know for you know, companies to be sold. And uh, so it's not, I'm not saying everybody should always kind of. You know, say no, but I think in our particular instance, uh, we we believe there's enough momentum building with some of the partnerships we'd form, other things that we we sensed our you know our growth really was accelerating, and that it would just be uh, a little premature. But there was you know the risk of, of Microsoft, and the risk of others, AT and T and you know, GE, a lot of other people were you know kind of in the market or entering the market uh, was a little daunting, and there was definitely a view that this was like little upstart in you know Tyson's Corner, Virginia had gotten you know, pretty far, and, and, and maybe it was time to you know, call, call it a day, to declare victory and, and move on, but we felt it was, you know, was, you know, it was still, there's still a lot of work to be done, and obviously we're glad we made that call. Um, so uh, getting back to Rise of the Rest, other than you know, this idea, I know originally to come to Richmond, you were pitched on the idea of riding in a trolley all morning and seeing the city. I know that was really the, the big sell, but other than the trolleys, <laughs> 
trolley was fun. Not just because we, we went around, we, we did mostly on our bus, but we, we, uh, they, we got on this trolley. I was told it was going to be kind of a little historic tour. It actually was kind of interesting. Uh, but every time, the, it seemed like every time the trolley stopped, like a, another entrepreneur or two got on for like two-minute pitches, uh, which was pretty awesome. And most of them leaving like products behind, you know, including all kinds of you know, alcoholic beverages and other, other things, like 10 o'clock in the morning. So it was like, it was like oh, that was, that was an interesting twist. We'd seen a lot of things on this tour, but we hadn't yet seen the startup pitches on the trolley. Yeah. Kind of a captive audience, you know. Richmond entrepreneur, also alcoholic, but that's okay. Um, okay, so what, what's impressed you about Richmond? What, um, you know, what have you seen that has surprised you? What, of all the places you've been uh, across the country as part of the Rise of the Rest tour, what stood out here uh, in, in Richmond? Well, I'd say I'm still processing it. It's been, what, five hours, six hours, something like that. So we, it's not like we have it figured out. But, you know, uh, we did meet dozens of entrepreneurs and did, you know, tour around different, different neighborhoods and saw different, different things and talked to a lot of different, different people. Uh, so I, I, I was impressed with what we saw. The, the, the sense of camaraderie, collegiality, kind of, you know, community, uh, collaboration, I think, was, was, was strong. My sense is, and I heard this from some people, you guys will, will know better, but... You know, it's, in the last five years or so, there has been a kind of a, a, a change in some of the people that maybe were skeptical sitting on the sidelines or not really interested in mentoring or investing in some of the startups seem to be, you know, kind of engaged uh, more. And there's more of a more network density in terms of, you know, the connections that you know, people had and people are starting to build companies in some of these sectors that are starting to get more attention, starting to, you know, get more media profile, starting to get more... You know, you know, capital uh, and the raw talent of the people and the and the you know and sort of the, the, the footprint, if you will, the platform uh, of Richmond does seem ripe for uh, for growth. So I think there's you know, there's there's still work to be done in terms of you know obviously we're trying to shine a spotlight on what's happening here, tell the story, attract more media attention, attract more investor attention. We'd love to have more investors from Silicon Valley or New York, or other places to get on planes to come to Richmond and understand what's happening here, because I think they will be uh, impressed. But there's also still, obviously, more to be done within the community to kind of create more of that sense of possibility and more of that sense of, of uh, connectedness. But I think, I think it, it's very well positioned. I also like the fact that there was a diversity of different, different business. We saw food, we saw clothing, we saw you know, you know, kind of social media, we saw all kinds of different things, but they're, they're energy, kind of a, kind of a you know, battery technology, you know, a lot of different things that were show the diversity of thinking, the diversity of the perspectives uh, that based on other, you know, companies, other industries here, you know, that it's not all kind of a one-trick pony, if you will. It's, it's got a pretty diverse kind of uh, economy, and I think that, that uh, you know, that, that bodes well. So I think it, you know, continue to build on that, and everybody kind of redouble their efforts to try to figure out how to not just do what you're doing with your startup or whatever it might be, but how do you how do you kind of be part of this broader journey, this broader story uh, for for Richmond, the Richmond region? I think there's reason to be optimistic. And and when and this is a we've seen this all around the country. It's a momentum begets momentum kind of dynamic. Silicon Valley. I mentioned the Detroit Pittsburgh things. Silicon Valley 60, 70 years ago was like orchards. 
it, 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 what happened was, you know, some technology partly coming out of Stanford University, some initial investments, sort of venture capital kind of got started there, led to more things, which led to more people coming there, which led to more capital flowing there and more research happening there. And, you know, half a century later, it, it's, it's this, uh, you know, great place with all this different, uh, different excitement. These things don't happen overnight. It is kind of you know, building, you know, building on that, that uh, you know, that, that momentum. And as people sense that momentum, what you'll start to see, I think you're starting to see, but you'll see more in the next decade, uh, is more capital, both more capital coming off the sidelines within this region, uh, and also uh, more capital coming into the region, which will then lead more people to say, I wanna stay here if I grew up here or went to school here, as opposed to feeling like I needed to leave, and result in more people coming here, including some boomeranging who maybe did have a connection here, but felt they had to, be in New York or San Francisco or some other place, and now it's you know feels like it's uh, you know time to come back, and that you know that just helps feeding the the, the, the momentum. So I, I'm I'm very optimistic based on what I've I've seen. So in the fall of 1993, um, you, you started this tour called Getting America Online. You went in a bus. You went city to city. It's, it's all the same shtick. We don't have any new <laughs> ideas here. We just thankfully it's not the same bus, but so. <laughs> That's maybe it is. Nice maybe it is. I actually said, I it's probably it's pretty nice, I would imagine. But okay, so fast forward 20 years later, you're, I don't know, laying in a hammock somewhere in uh, Hawaii. I don't know, maybe not. And you think, man, I got to get America going again. I got to jumpstart innovation. I'm going to get back in the bus. Um, so what? What? I don't know. Again, I'm making. That's these not stories. exactly this, these are, what these happened. Are, but... These are my interpretations <laughs> of, of uh, you know how these things played out. But what, what is Rise of the Rest? I mean, what, what is the, why are you doing it? That's the question I get more than anything else, is, is, why, is why is Steve K, Steve K spending his time doing this when he could be doing 100 other things? Well, the, the simple answer is I, I want to do whatever I can do, you know, leveraging the platform I have, the resources I have, uh, to try to make sure, goes back to our earlier question, this country remains the most innovative entrepreneurial nation. You know, full stop. And some of that is investing through revolution and actually kind of putting your money where your mouth is and backing you know, you know, companies almost all outside of Silicon Valley. Uh, and you know, not and not because we don't dislike Silicon Valley, but we think they're more great entrepreneurs and aren't getting the same attention. Some of that is through efforts like the Rise of the Rest and chairing Up Global, which is the Startup America partnership and Startup Weekends. Some of that is being a advocate, evangelist, connector, whatever you want to call it for public policy, particularly in Washington, things like the, this jump-starting our Business Startups Act I spent a lot of time on, immigration I spent a lot of time on. So it's a mix of, of both things, directly investing, things we're doing from a community building, more foundation, philanthropic stand standpoint, and things we're doing from more of a policy advocacy standpoint to do, you know, kind of what I can to try to make sure that, as I say, we may remain the most, uh, Innovative entrepreneurship, which I think is a big deal. I think I think there is, you know, the lessons of history are, are. And I talked about some of them before in terms of what's happened with the rise and fall of different regions. You know, if you if you lose your way, um, it's a problem. I, I would say, you know, most of Europe, not all of Europe, has kind of lost its way in the last half century, and it's kind of, you know, the economies have generally flatlined, and and the sense of opportunity and and is is, is generally doesn't exist. And I want to make sure. That doesn't happen here. And so I, I feel like there's a contribution I can make, and this feels to me like uh, a good way to do it, number one. Number two, I love entrepreneurs. 
I love hearing their stories. I love championing their, their, their causes. So kind of doing this through the prism of a, of a bus tour, obviously deliberately designed to be kind of this Americana road trip uh, kind of thing, which will get more attention than if we were just flying from, from, uh, from city to city, is trying to tell your stories to other audiences and also trying in, in some small way to encourage people here to connect more and work together, you know, more, more here, and uh, I feel like I can, I can, I can make that contribution, and I'm delighted to have the opportunity to, and the kind of the platform to do it. We're going to take some questions from the audience in just a second. Um, I just want to ask you one or two more things. What is a great day for you? Like, what you, you've had, probably some really great days. What, like, what does a great day look like for you? I have never been asked that question. <laughs> I, 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 have a, I have a good... I've been interviewed a lot, too, so that's <laughs> hard. I, 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 I would answer it by, I think, like most of us, I think there are different days that have a different thing. You know, some of it would be family, kids. I think I had a great day a couple months ago. My dad turned 90. Wow. A couple years ago, I didn't think he was going to make it to 90. He was in the hospital for five weeks, so the fact that he turned 90 was like a great day. And, uh, and you know, kids and celebrating their... their, with their Achievements and, and, and you know how how things have developed there is a great day. Uh, spending time with my wife, often traveling, you know, is, is a great day. But also, kind of going back to what I said before, things like today are they're tiring because it's sort of a you know kind of a nonstop kind of thing. But it's also energizing because you get the sense of this, oh, hope, this hope and happening. possibility, yeah. and it gives you confidence that the you know the future you know you know can be bright. And so, and for me, having a a mix of different things, I think, also kind of, you know, plays to my interest and in, in personality versus you know doing the same thing every day. Would you ever start another company? I don't think so. I, I, I like the this kind of three ring circus, if you will. Uh, and I think I I think I, at this point I, I can have more impact trying to, you know, kind of invest in a bunch of different entrepreneurs in a bunch of different sectors, a bunch of different places, and try to help them take what are big ideas, but now small companies, and try to turn them into big companies, and, and some of the things like this and, you know, that I wouldn't be able to do if I really was you know, running a company, or, or even the policy advocacy. I think part of the reason I've had some effectiveness there is I don't really have an agenda other than you know, pushing you know, kind of this you know, broader entrepreneurial agenda forward for the, you know, the country. Most people, when they go to Washington, you know, particularly CEOs, are there frankly, asking for something, you know, want something good to happen that helps their company or trying to keep something bad that happens from happening that might hurt their company. And I think, you know, I think I at least at this point have a, you know, I think when I show up, that's, that's not the presumption. You know, yeah. presumption how do you bring people together in a bipartisan way to, to, to accelerate things that will help grow the economy and create jobs? Um, hashtag rise of rest. And my last thing I just want to clarify, it's not really, it's more of a statement than a question, that is, just to be clear that I mean the whole political season or this mean the red and the blue here, this is, means nothing, right? <laughs> I did not notice it, but if it, if, if, if it can bring people appealing, together. We're appealing, yeah, we're exactly. bringing everyone together. I'll be right here. That. <laughs> Let's give it up for Steve Case. Thank right. you very much. Startup Grind is supported by Columbia Business School, where entrepreneurial thinking is part of their DNA. Through their innovative programming, Columbia Business School students have the opportunity to put their entrepreneurial visions into action. Join Columbia Business School at the very center of business.